Welcome to the Disaster Tough Podcast, where we talk about emergency management by emergency managers. We share stories, lessons, and tips to help keep you moving forward. I am John Scardina, the host. I share my experience as a former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters over the past decade. I now lead a private emergency management firm called Doberman Emergency Management that focuses on emergency planning, mitigation, and response. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. I am so excited to be able to talk about uh, emergency management from the perspective of research today. We're going to have Dr. Tim Frazier on here. He's a full professor and the faculty director of the Emergency and Disaster Management Program at Georgetown University, which many of you know, that's where, that's where I went for my master's uh, degree several years ago. I've had several of my classmates on here talking about their experiences, and each of those episodes are fantastic in their own right. And today we kind of get to loop that all together and talk about research. And Dr. Fraser, just to give a quick background for him, he's going to be talking a lot about that today, but all three of his degrees are in geography. He is considered a coastal hazards expert and is a leading researcher on the impact of sea level rise on the physical and socioeconomic vulnerability and resilience of coastal communities. And so he can really pull in that, that quantitative of piece of natural hazards and talk about marginalized populations, talk about the, the human environmental interaction. And he can really uh, speak to that research that is being done with all kinds of disasters that are happening and with my own perspective with Georgetown, I believe it's the best program out there. So, uh, Dr. Fraser, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, John. Good to be here. Yeah. So we we have explored this idea of uh, research based emergency management now really heavily in our field for about twenty years, right? And uh, over the course of that that period, a lot has changed in emergency management. And so we're going to be talking about some of the that research. That has uh, that has happened, but you know we can't really get away from uh, the fact that 2020 is such a monumental year, and it's going to be a monumental year for emergency management. And so, in in the terms of uh, in the moment, you know, analysis, right? Because we're still in 2020. From a disaster research a research perspective, comparing to other years, is this really different? Because I just feel like. You know, when I look at all the, the scope of disasters, man, we have hurricanes every year. We have wildfires every year. We have all these kinds of things. Partially, it feels like the, the public awareness is like through the roof, right? That's the big difference. So is this, this year totally different or is it more of a perspective thing? Uh, I think it's some of both. I think what we see over the last probably 10 or 15 years is there, there, there appear to be more uh, geophysical events impacting the U.S. And so some of that, I think, is awareness, as you say. So we're paying attention better to the news. The media is covering things better than they had covered in the past. And then there also appears to be a higher level of concentration of events in specific areas. And so mm. you, know, you, you understand that what's happening this year to uh, Texas Gulf Coast, Louisiana Gulf Coast, Mississippi Gulf Coast, you're getting hit uh, more frequently because of those what appears to be sort of the track of the storms this year in that region are, are higher. Uh, but I think it's some of both. I think it's a, an aware, a better awareness of the public, a better coverage of the media, disaster events, uh, sort of a heightened interest. And then this year, uh, there's the sort of the, the wild card in the room, which is COVID. And there's been a lot of concern. I've done a lot of interviews and talked to a lot of different people about how does COVID impact our ability to respond? And so, several sort of articles and several sort of interest about can FEMA handle response with COVID? And, you know, the, the question always is every year, can we handle this? Can we handle that? And every year we seem to do a reasonably good job with emergency management in terms of response. Uh, and then we grade ourselves afterwards and we give ourselves uh, a tough grade because we always want to do better. We always want to sort of, uh, you know, enhance our, our performance options because people count on us for, uh, to save lives and property. And so I think this is particularly tough because of the sort of additional sort of constraints that COVID brings. If you ask Red Cross, what does their shelter look like this year for evacuation shelter or release shelter look like relative to years in the past? And they will tell you that they have to have the shelter, but they also have to maintain it differently because of the COVID and spacing and limitations on beds. And it just adds a layer of complexity that we're not used to dealing with 
but it's probably going to be the new norm for the future. Yeah, I've had a lot of discussion with my counterparts, you know, uh, back in FEMA. And, you know, I, I kept on telling them, you know, back in, you know, February or March, every disaster you're going to deal with this year is a dual threat scenario because where do you put people? Uh, how do you protect your responders? How do you protect uh, the volunteers? Everybody else is going in there, not just with PPE and getting those resources in there, but, you know, during the actual response phase when people need help and there's going to be a lot of human interaction there, um, clearing debris, whatever. So that's an excellent point. And uh, if I recall, uh, in your research uh, throughout your your formal academic career before you became a professor, you focused on that climate change piece of how it's impacting disasters, right? And so uh, it would be it'd be sad to miss out on on trying to talk to an expert about that. How has climate change uh, impacted, uh, especially coastal regions? Is it because po- uh, populations are moving to the coast, or st- or are storms just really getting stronger? I think several things are happening from, from a hurricane perspective. One of the sort of the early data points, and it's, it's still early from a climatological perspective to look at uh, recent events and, and sort of the long history of climatology to understand is this, is this new or is this just sort of a recent trend? What we're seeing is uh, we're seeing storms that are larger in terms of uh, having more moisture content because sea surface temperatures have increased. So you have a warmer ocean, so more moisture in the storms. And then what we're seeing is sort of a weakening of the jet stream, weakening of uh, or, or altering of some of the currents in the, in, a, in the Atlantic. And so what we're getting is a different steering mechanism for storms. Mm. And so historically, if you look at the uh, hurricane tracks, historical hurricane tracks, most of them turn and miss the U.S. But what we're seeing now is sort of a different sort of strike pattern, a different sort of pattern. Mm. We're also seeing really slower moving storms storms that are larger in moisture content that are moving a lot slower and set off the coast or just off the coast or, or uh, you know, uh, somewhat a little bit inland and just sit and spin and dump rain, 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 rain. So flooding has increased because there's more precipitation with the storms moving slower, tracking in a different way. So early indications are this is sort of the new norm. And we saw that starting with Matthew. We saw that with Harvey in Houston where the storm just sat there and dumped an enormous amount of rain and didn't sort of move through the area in the way that it usually moves through or get pushed the way it usually gets gets pushed. So you couple that with more people moving toward the coast. Everybody wants to live near the beach, it seems. Uh, so that's not a bad, not necessarily a bad thing. You couple that with sea level rise. And we're starting to see the impacts of sea level rise on a daily basis in places like Norfolk, uh, Hampton Roads, uh, Virginia, where we're starting to see a daily episodic flooding with high tides. And you couple that with storm surge, and what you're getting is uh, hurricane storm surge it penetrates further inland and it's deeper in different places because of all those factors. So it's a little bit of both, uh, or a little bit of all that that's sort of making uh, for really good Hollywood movies in the future. Uh, <laughs> we have to deal with that, right? And The Rock doesn't always come and save everybody uh, like he does on TV. And, you know, and then there's an intensification of wildfire out west. I mean, we're talking primarily so far about uh, climate change and sea level rise and hurricane storm surge and increased precipitation as a result of all the things and the storms stuck, getting stuck and dumping enormous amounts of rain. But what we also have to think about is increased drought, drier conditions in the West, leading to intensification of wildfire and then the suppression policies that we've had in the U.S. Uh, for the past 100 years to not let the fire burn and, and then this sort of intensification of urban wildland development. So people wanting to build and live uh, you know, on top of the hill instead of in the valley. All these factors working together to sort of have this intensification of hazard exposure and intensification of disaster experience that we're facing. Gosh, that's why he's an expert. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that for We have a lot, I, I would say, um, based off of the comments we receive, you know, we do have, you know, several thousand people tune in uh, each episode and we're really grateful for that. But we do have a lot of entry-level to mid-level uh, career emergency managers, a lot of uh, prior military going into emergency management, uh, people coming in here. And what you just spoke to is the complexity of disaster. Uh, you spoke about Matthew and Harvey, both of which I re- uh, responded to. Matthew was actually my first response uh, when I switched over to the national strike team um, from another EM job. And uh, I remember two things. I remember... Um, being in that storm 
just getting drenched. And somebody said, well, on, on the news, you know, they were trying to speak to, I would say, the, the most common denominator. And they were saying, storms are becoming wetter. And I was like, I feel pretty wet right now. So when you talk about moisture content, um, doing a GIS perspective, what we did is we got a satellite over the area and basically we captured a one foot by one foot block. It was, it was absolutely incredible. And we were able to ping how many raindrops were in there, how much volume of water was in there. And, um, you know, you're thinking a storm moving at 140 miles an hour spinning towards the coast and we were able to say okay based off of this one foot by one foot block this is how much moisture is in that and we can estimate how much it's going to dump and um that that really was like eye-opening of like where the science needs to head of like how much uh how much information we can have even before people are impacted and then when hurricane harvey essentially stalled over texas i mean it basically just sat over the state for four days um, as a Cat Four, it didn't it didn't reduce in strength. That is when I, I think a lot of things changed. I think that's a, another uh, major one that we've talked on several episodes. So thank you for helping us continue that trend of talking about Hurricane Harvey on almost every episode. Um, okay, so at Georgetown, you've talked about theory into practice. Switching gears here a little bit into more of that research side of what's happening now uh, with the pandemic. How will, you know, using, again, theory into practice, how will the pandemic influence education for emergency managers in the future? Well, I, you know, I think one of the challenges that we've had in our field for quite some time is the lack of understanding about the sort of the integrated approach that we need for uh, traditional emergency management integrated with global health or public health. I've got a very good friend who is in the global health arena predominantly, and he says to me all the time, ever, ever natural, ever disaster is a public health emergency. Mm. And, and my response to him has always been, no, ever disaster is a potential public health emergency. It doesn't <laughs> have to be. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think his point is well taken in that we have to start looking at sort of more holistically across sort of what, what are the range of, of challenges that we have to look at and what do we need to know as emergency manager to be able to interface and deal with those challenges. And so for COVID, obviously, uh, virtually every uh, class that we have in our program at, at Georgetown has case studies in it that involve pandemic now that, that may not have had those before in all classes. Certainly we have uh, public health and emergency management, global health emergency management classes that have uh, pandemic, historical pandemic built within those classes, as case study examples. But now it's virtually every class talks about it. And I think the role of the emergency manager is always growing and changing and evolving and becoming more complex and more sophisticated. Mm. The days of uh, the, the local emergency manager being the, the person who drives the backhoe or the bulldozer and digs the ditch to save the town from flooding, those days are gone. And we have to look at things from a far more sort of integrated, complex perspective. So I think one of the primary changes that we'll see moving forward is this sort of integration of global health and public health better within what we normally do in emergency management. Mm. And as emergency managers, we can't rely on public health or the public health representative to come in and save us and educate us. We have to know something about it going in. We have to understand how do we have to embed uh, pandemic preparedness and response within our emergency management plan and not rely solely on public health uh, to take care of that for us. Yeah, I remember responding to uh, Ebola. Um, I was part of the, the response team there. In fact, I was at the National Cancer Institute who housed all the Ebola patients. And so what my job really was to focus on is mitigating potential threats to um, the staff there at NCI and making sure that there wasn't like community spread. Um, and going from that into the Georgetown program, um, you know, we were able to really focus on many different disasters. And I still remember thinking... Um, I think it was actually during our terrorism um, course. Um, we were talking about man-made incidents, and we were into LL and L, and we were talking about all this stuff. And I kept on thinking back to that Ebola response, and you know everything you have to do to mitigate. Um, I was grateful for that knowledge of public health, and to be able to integrate that, and then. Uh, was asked to help create a pandemic response plan for U.S. policy. 
And essentially, we haven't followed that very well. I, I knew that by the end of February, we weren't following that very well, or at least that past plan. And um, not trying to criticize anybody, but I, I think that when you have emergency managers who are integrated with public health, who are, who understand that it's not a bacteria, that it you know for example COVID is an RNA strand is surrounded by fat. When you when you know what that means, you you react differently to that. And I think that's a great call out. I think um, you know a lot of programs need to. Um, I think they will have to shift their focus because there's so much public awareness to this. People are going to go into education thinking that pandemics are a part of their education and um, it's going to, to force programs to do that. So a good, good call out. Um, okay. So looking at pandemic and all the potential after actions that we're going to have, because it's going to be years of research for this um, rating, how we're going to look at, changes in the new normal, as you mentioned, right? Uh, I can think of a couple other major events in the last, you know, 20, 30 years that impacted emergency management, even dramatically. I mean, completely changed the face of emergency management. Um, so rating, rating that like that or this pandemic to, uh, you know, nine 11, which again changed everything or Katrina, um, where would you where would you rate that in the amount of change that's going to happen? That's a good question. I you know I, I we always use sort of benchmark case studies for our programs to sort of better understand progress that we've made in our field. And so if you think back toward to Hurricane Andrew in the '90s, that Hurricane Andrew was probably the first storm that saw radical change or realignment of FEMA policy or federal policy afterwards, federal and state local policy mm-hmm. in terms of we realized after Andrew what we didn't know, and then we started trying to fix it. And unfortunately, what, what's happened over the years is every time we have a major event like Andrew, Katrina, Sandy, 9-11, we realize what we don't know, we try to fix it. And sometimes we fix it in a good way, and sometimes we fix it in a bad way. Uh, <laughs> but you know, we're trying. We're trying to do something right. Yeah. And I think what's funny about this is not really funny in a funny way, but yeah, I have colleagues that say to me that are sort of outside the field of emergency management that say to me, wow, we didn't know this. This is all new. This is all different. And I just point out the, something simple like, I forgot the name of the movie, John, but the Matt Damon movie that uh, about pandemic that was shot in 2005 gets it about 80 to 90% right. So Hollywood knew, uh, mm-hmm. but we didn't know in our field. And, and it's, it's amazing sort of the, the lack of understanding of, of, of what we already knew and what we're having trouble executing because of some of the challenges or additional challenges. Uh, but back to the question, I'm sorry, I haven't answered the question. No, yet. you're good. Yeah. But you know, I, you know, like you pointed out, all these events, we learned a lot from Katrina. We learned a lot from nine 11. And I have a friend in the field uh, who said to me, uh, not too long ago, people are going to eat for 20 or 30 years as a result of COVID. And what he meant by that is there's going to be an incredible amount of attention given to the field. Uh, employment job opportunities for new emergency managers and public health professionals, enhanced education programs across the board for this understanding that we need to know better, we need to do a better job, realignment of policy, realignment of agency inter- uh, interaction within policy, within uh, the process, within response, within recovery. So there'll be a lot of jobs. Uh, there'll be a lot of money uh, that goes into how do we do this better next time and how do we take what happened to us, learn from that, a lot of research, a lot of papers that are be written from an academic perspective. How do we do a better job next time mm. uh, dealing with this? Because we, as one thing we know, uh, just like the hurricane, just like the tornado, just like the earthquake, it's going to happen again. And in spite of our best efforts to minimize, uh, the, not let it happen again, what we have to do is work to minimize the impact of it in the future. So there'll be a lot of people, there's a game changer for the next 20 or 30 years at least. A lot of people will, um, there'll be a lot of resources dedicated to the field, which which is a positive thing. It's just the stressor that caused those resources to be dedicated. Uh, it, that's that's what's unfortunate here. Yeah, the trick for emergency managers working with people uh, who control the budget is to not come off as a doomsday prepper. That is, I mean, that's seriously what it is, right? I mean, the, at the end of the day, emergency managers uh, work within that political spectrum and have to be able to navigate. And 
I would say the the most successful example I can I can show of trying to get funding to to mitigate future disasters outside of hey everything just blew up now it's now you have to deal with this was um, when I was at uh, NCI going back to those DC days we had an Earth Day coming up and I knew the director of uh, NCI uh, really uh, liked bringing his kids to that Earth Day event and of course as a scientist. I built with a coworker an augmented reality sandbox, which for people who don't understand what that is, basically we I pointed a a projector screen uh, or a projector and an Xbox 360 Connect, and at at a sandbox, at a literal sandbox, and as we moved the sand, the uh, infrared would tell tell us that the height and depth would change, and so it would change the color. And so I was able to make a, like a real map. It's on some random YouTube channel, I think. And his kids came and we were talking about flooding. So I'd move the sand and I'd make it look like a rain cloud. And all of a sudden the, the, it would appear that there's water on the sand. And so it looked like active water. And we were talking about where to put homes and where to put structures so that they didn't, they didn't flood. And I still remember him coming up and saying, Oh, you look at emergencies from a scientific perspective. I was like, yeah, it's not just my opinion. Like, you know, this is like all this data we're doing. And after that, every single project that I wanted to get done got done. And I had colleagues who were just as competent that struggled a little bit. And I think it's because I knew of what my stakeholder wanted. And I think that's what emergency managers need to do for sure. You know. Yeah, we always talk about it in our field, the, sort of the equation. I, I'm not trying to be cynical, but I want my students to understand what the challenge is in the real world. And we, we start by saying the answer to every question is money. Mm-hmm. And so certainly that's a big, a big deal, resource. And then what we try to do from a sort of uh, theory of bounded rationality perspective, where theory of bounded rationality is where we make imperfect decisions based on imperfect knowledge. And what we want to do is we want to make more perfect decisions, but we need more perfect knowledge for that. And there's where the science comes in, right? And some of the modeling that you've done and some of the modeling that we've done in our work uh, to enhance sort of the science so that we can make better decisions because we're, we're all dealing with limited resources. Uh, and one of the things that that's really surprising for surprisingly difficult for people to understand is that they, there's this quote, the statistic is quoted with four to one, eight to one, 10 to one, whatever the one is. Uh, and that statistic is for every sort of dollar you spend locally on mitigation, you say the federal government is $4, $8, $6, $10, whatever stat you want to use. And I've seen all sorts of stats. And, it, and it does, the stat doesn't matter. What you're talking about is the local government spending a dollar on mitigation to save the federal government money when there's just reality here where the local government doesn't have the dollar to spend. And the local government is being asked to spend money they don't have to solve a problem that might, might happen so many years into the future. And if it does happen 20, 30 years into the future, the federal government is going to come and save you. Mm-hmm. Well, 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 I mean, come on, man. Who would spend a dollar if, especially if you don't have it? So there's a challenge there. And that this disconnect across jurisdictions when it comes to emergency management that we have to overcome uh, that, that makes it really difficult. And what we talk about all the time in our, in our program is this aspect of preparedness and what is, what is really prepared? What is that? What does it look like? And I told my students, I teach the natural hazard class this semester at Georgetown, and I told my students Tuesday night, uh, one, of the, one of my students asked, what's the best thing I can do as an emergency manager in my community? I said, become really good friends with the planner. Because if you're building it right and building it in an appropriate location, there's far less risk of exposure, far less risk. And so we have to think about the problem holistically and not just, you know, where do we park the ambulance when it's time to respond? And, and John, I'll just say this. It's a joke that I give uh, in our program all the time. Every group of people, every group of students I talk to in our program, I ask the question, what's the best use of the fire truck? I mean, we know what a fire truck is. What is the best use of the fire truck? And our students will be like, oh, what, is it a trick question? What are you asking, Dr. Frazier? Uh, to put the fire out? Uh, no, absolutely not. And from my perspective, the best use of the fire truck is for the Christmas parade or the 4th of July parade. <laughs> but we're taking the fire truck out of the fire station only for the parade. 
we've done a really nice job in our community for fire suppression and fire awareness. Yeah. So we have to start thinking along the lines of, you know, what do we need to do from a preparedness perspective that minimizes our need to respond, which minimizes our need to recover, which minimizes exposure and vulnerability in our communities and enhances resilience so far. We have to start thinking about the whole picture. And I think one of the challenges we have in our field is that, that we're dedicating far too few resources to preparedness. You have so many great uh, points there. It's, uh, I don't think we'll have time to... We could probably just make a whole episode just on that, honestly. Uh, that last point about fire and fire science. Firefighters, a majority of what they respond to now are medical events. They have done a great job through, again, fire science and through uh, policy and through regulation to essentially put themselves out of a job uh, and, in, until the really, really big stuff happens. And so... You know, you you brought up a while ago about um, mitigating forest fires, and you, you hear so much on the news. I mean, news does this to people naturally, but it's either this or that. It's either, oh, if he says take care of, uh, you know, cleaning up ground floor and and cl- cleaning up dead debris, uh, then he's not saying climate change. And if he's saying climate change, then we don't. It's it really is a combination of a lot of different things, and. Uh, what you're talking about is using mitigation as a, as a way to put us out of the job for response is what we want to do. Um, and I, I think that's, a, again, a fantastic call out. Um, the, 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 the other piece about that, being a GISer, I'm a GISer, um, using an analytically-based hazard vulnerability assessment, an H, HVA, um, changes everything. Because, yes, during the HVA, you need to be contacting engineers and you need to be working with urban planners and you need to be working with uh, the FBI and start to get some of that man-made stuff all put together for your local community. But as you throw in GIS and you start to, to look at, okay, you, you are going to have a problem. You have, uh, For example, we can look at crime rates through GIS, right? And we can look at the history of the increase of crime and so you can say, okay, you have poor school districts, you have rising, rising crime, which always goes together. In 15 years, if you build your facility here, you're going to have a problem, right? And, and the same thing happens with uh, where floods going to happen. And it, it, just to apply that even on a local level, um, looking at a specific facility, I was able to, to accurately predict that we were going to have um, a a structural issue in one of our facilities. And I won't go into too much detail, but basically I said, the way your pipe systems are designed, looking at the CAD files and looking at uh, where, where flooding happens every year, you're eventually going to have moisture in your brick walls, which will freeze, expand, and you're going to have a major issue on this, this wall. And uh, the organization I was working with uh, unfortunately, I had not proved myself serious about that yet, serious enough yet. And the following winter, it happened. We had a major power outage that impacted millions and millions of dollars of research because we the the wall froze, the expanded, broke, and you know caused a massive power outage. Um, luckily, in our coup plan, we had essentially every dry ice company in the region uh, as part of this coup because there's so much money in, in research, again, going back to money, that came in there and they were able to save those negative 80 freezers. Um, it, but that, that just is a, a, good, a good call out. You can, you can expand as, as small as you want to, to as large as you want. Um, so, man, just so many good points. We need to have you back on here. <laughs> John, I'd like to just sort of say, too, some of our work, obviously, you know, we've done a lot of work uh, across the board. People look at my sort of record of, of research and know that I've dipped my toes in, in multiple different types of hazards. But one of the challenges is how do you present things, as you just said, in a way that, that gets action? Mm. And so what we see all the time is someone asks me, I've built vulnerability models and a lot of vulnerability assessment. And someone asks you, can you do a vulnerability assessment? And I'm like, well, yeah, I can, I can assess vulnerability in your community. 30 seconds. Give me a census map with socioeconomic data on it, and I'll tell you who's vulnerable. Circle, 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 we're done. So how good does the assessment need to be for vulnerability is, is one thing. We're still sort of hung up on getting better vulnerability assessment. And the reality here is we ought to be looking at residual risk. We ought to be looking at sort of how do we go from the assessment, the risk assessment, from the vulnerability assessment, 
the resilience assessment or whatever, understand the things that we need to do to lower risk in our community or enhance resilience in our community. And then once we execute a list of 10 things or five things that are recommended to for risk reduction, once we execute that, what is the risk that's left over? What is the residual risk? And how do we guide people into implementation? As you know, as well as I do, we're really good at telling people what they need to do, really bad at helping people get it done. Mm. And so I think in our field, what we see all the time is bunch of assessment, great, great, great assessment. We all know where, where the poor people are. We all know who the vulnerable people are. We all know generally where it's going to flood in the community. Really bad at helping get uh, actions done to do something about it. And typically what we see from that regard then is we see that we, we come up with a list of recommendations for the local community, do some things that makes their community safer, and then we don't tell them how to do it. We don't weight those recommendations. We don't look at residual risk, post those recommendations. So what typically happens is community will do the thing that either is politically expedient, that they have the money for, or if they don't have the money, they'll do a lot of training because training is relatively cheap. And that that's not necessarily lowering their risk in a way that's more, more meaningful in their communities. We have to do a better job going cradle to grave here and not get stuck on the vulnerability side and not get stuck on telling people what they should do, but actually helping people execute the plan uh, that we help them create or help them write. And I'll just tell you one example from from a county that I worked with in Florida was that the county wanted to be sustainable. They had a goal to be one of the most sustainable counties in the U.S. So they had an urban growth boundary that was passed along down their, down their county. And we know in Florida, everybody wants to live along the coast. So when they passed that urban growth boundary and decided not to allow development on the other side of that boundary, what they did for their, for their sustainable development model was they constrained growth to the high hazard zone. That's not sustainable long term. So they're looking at it from a different sort of perspective. Mm. And then when we showed them what hurricane storm surge looked like with sea level rise, which enhanced the storm surge. And basically what happens with sea level rise in this model that I built was that category three storm becomes a category three. A three becomes a four. Even if the storm doesn't get bigger, it's the impact area increases by the next category mm. with about 60 centimeters of sea level rise. And what we showed them was, and what we, what we learned really quickly was, they were good at looking at category one, two, and three. And then they thought about ways in which we could sort of make this plan better. We could move some development here. We could do some things. When you get to category four and category five in Florida, that's Armageddon. And everybody pushed away from the table and said, let's go eat lunch. Mm. So you, you can't show the worst case scenario because then there's no, uh, that becomes an act of God syndrome. And if God does this to us, then we'll respond later. But if you show the incremental, like, Here's flooding from this level of storm, and here's areas of the community that flood. Then you can make a hotspot response map or, or preparedness map, and you can go in and do some work. Uh, but again, we're talking about jazz from the perspective of allowing us more data for our, our better decisions and really helping us target and manage uh, scarce resources because no one has enough money to do everything they need to do. A hazard vulnerability assessment, if it's done correctly, builds the base of all other emergency plans. The, the worst thing I've seen in numerous counties is, again, not knocking people, but they go in there with their hazard mitigation plan thinking it's check the box for recovery from FEMA. A mitigation plan, if you're doing it right, is mitigating disasters pre-event. And what I see is like, oh, we got our hazard mitigation plan done three years ago. Uh, we had a levy break, which we thought would happen. So we're going to apply for those FEMA grants. It was like, that was that could have been done previous to the event. So what Doberman... Can I make, huh? can I, can I make a quick comment here? Yeah. In that what I've seen in the field over and over again is copy and paste hazard mitigation plan. So the local community gets FEMA money comes up with the match dollars, they hire an external consultant to write their plan for them. The external consultant copies the plan that they've created for another another county that, that doesn't even have the same hazards. And so how could it be a good plan? And I've read and evaluated plans. I've read a, read a plan in Oregon, uh, and I was reading the plan in this county in West Virginia. Its name kept coming up. It didn't even do find and replace. <laughs> I my level of quality is that plan. And, and the rea reality is just what you said. If we're not making plans that are appropriate for the local community that, that actually try to do mitigation, uh, then we're just sweeping up. And do you really need a plan to sweep up? I saw, I saw a plan. So I, I am a private emergency management guy, but our whole pitch is that we don't do cookie cutter. 
because we do GIS. So we we do GIS within all of our mapping, so it shows that you know it's customized. But uh, part of the reason why I started doing that is because going after disaster after disaster after disaster with the federal government, I would get into these local communities and say, okay, can we look at your, your plan to see why it's not working? And we were in one state and like half their plan was just definitions. One, it was like a just big brick. And two, their other big thing, they, they kept on talking about volcanoes. There wasn't a volcano for like a, like a thousand miles of their state and I was like, you know, how much did you pay for this? And it was a seven-figure number to do for the state. And I was like, this is why we keep having problems. And so just going back to like, you have to use expert emergency managers who understand the analytical process of a disaster to try to mitigate beforehand. And so, again, starting with an HVA and using that in your HMP, your hazard mitigation plan, or your Thyra or your emergency occupation plan, occupant plan, or your occupant emergency plan, your emergency operations plan, all these different plans that you have, understanding what your vulnerability uh, is, is worthless unless you're actually going to do something about it. And I think that's what you're saying is, yeah, you can circle vulnerable populations all day. How do you integrate that? And my pitch uh, several times on this podcast has been, if if you're struggling to get through uh, the local people, um, your level, whatever that scope is, talk about insurance. You know, you're okay paying car insurance just in case you get a car wreck. So you pay a little bit now, save a lot in the future. But the problem is, in the U.S., um, I, the National Flood Insurance Act, which kind of created this cost share between states and the federal government, you you've seen states pull away those dollars that they would have used for um, mitigation and response and expect, say, hey, look, our resources are over uh, are overcome. We, we can't deal with this. We're overwhelmed. And so we need the federal government to get in there. And they can prove that pretty easily because they don't have the, they didn't allocate those dollars to there because they expect to be bailed out. So there's, there's a whole lot that goes in here of like uh, working through that cog, right? Um, okay, so we're going to switch topics here because we've been talking about GIS a lot and you're definitely the expert here with GIS. Um, will you share kind of your experience of in terms of all the different areas you could have focused on GIS, geospatial information systems for those who don't, uh, haven't really looked at it. What has been kind of your experience and why did you choose to focus on natural hazards? Yeah, you know, I, I, um, I had a dream. We all have a dream when we're, we're a child, for whatever reason. My best friend's dad was director for Skywarn. Mm. And Skywarn is the, the organization of volunteers that go out to spot for tornadoes. Uh, so I grew up in uh, Tornado Alley. And so 14, 15 years old, I was out in a car looking for tornadoes. Um, may not sound too smart, uh, but it sort of shaped my career. So I, my goal was to work at FEMA one day. I really wanted to be. Uh, that was my goal, and I got in the academy, and I really liked what I did in the academy. And I wanted to stay and help other people uh, in this in this area. And, and so I, re- I really sort of wanted to understand better what exposure looked like and how that exposure was constantly changing and what could we do from a sort of a planning development perspective better understand how we need to build houses or how we need to situate development in a way that causes us to have less impact because we're not going to be able – to change the path of the hurricane. We have to respond to that. And so I started working with evacuation. As for my master's thesis at, at Penn State, I looked at sort of what type of subdivision design best facilitates evacuation. And we have these curvilinear type subdivisions where they have one road in and one road out. Obviously, that's very attractive if you want to live on a cul-de-sac and little Johnny's playing in the driveway and he doesn't want to get run over by a car. Fabulous, we all get that. Mm-hmm. But if you have to leave in a hurry, uh, you can't you can't go, and so there's challenges with development. Then I started thinking about broader scale development, like modeling evacuation for larger communities. And we started looking at how do we control evacuation? So how do we understand who needs to go and who can stay? Where do they need to go? And we don't over evacuate or shadow evacuate. But in general, I was always really interested in what we call in my field, uh, in my PhDs in geography. Uh, and there's human environment interaction is one component of geography. GIS science is another. And I just, I just married 
a human environment interaction. So what's going on in the geophysical environment? How does that affect society with my sort of love and, and desire to, to produce better data so we can make better decisions? And I think strongly believe that the way to do that is through geospatial analysis. Uh, that's a great pitch because uh, in, you're talking about your experience, but you're also talking about the pitch there, right? Um, for the, for the use of that. And um, what I found was um, through my experiences in, in doing GIS and trying to integrate all these analytical processes to a, a type A personality field who just wants to, hey, use my past experience and, and make a decision. What would be your pitch then to emergency managers who... Uh, again, like that, that almost like that retired for police, uh, or retired firefighter mentality of going in there. I'm like, well, I've always done it this way. And so I I know what to do. How do you convince them to use GIS or look at that more of the analytical process? Well, I think sort of the, the sort of the easy sort of answer would be show them the picture. And the picture is the model like you built that was very effective in getting, uh, allowing the, the, the people that were looking at your sandbox model that you've mentioned, understanding really quickly what the future was going to look like or a potential event might look like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mapping or computer models that show that can be really effective. And people just, in their mind, they can't construct, unless they've lived through the disaster, where flooding is going to be. Uh, but you can show that through, you can show that quite quite well visually with GIS. Uh, the, the question always comes down to, okay, have have we... How have we performed in past disaster events? Do we want to do better or do we think we got it? Are we good? Is it good enough? And and the question is always if we lost a dollar in property value or, or unfortunately lost a single life, then we didn't do a good enough job. So how do we sort of do better? And so I always want to show some sort of visual example of what the challenge is and then how do we sort of do better? And what, when we do something better, what does that look like visually as well? And so you build a model, you, and you produce a map, and you put the map on the table, and everybody looks at the map, and everybody sees the map and says, well, that's reality there. If the map shows it, obviously it must be true. And then the other challenge is trying to explain to someone in, a, in an honest way, because you don't want to mislead anyone, that that's a model, that's a virtual representation of reality, it's not necessarily reality. There could be errors in that, uh, an error margin in that map, and try to display that as well. So you said, look, I can't tell you if one side of the street gets wet or the other side of the street gets wet. But what I can tell you is there's going to be substantial flooding in a community. This is generally the area that's going to flood. Our stormwater system is, in, is inadequate to handle precipitation of this magnitude. If we don't do anything about it, we're going to get start getting flooding on a more, uh, you know, in a more and more frequent perspective at a higher level of, of magnitude. We need to write a grant to come up with uh, some money to enhance our stormwater system, or this is the new norm. And and that and they sometimes that works and sometimes people as you know will say well uh, you know we still don't have the money because there's competing resources or, or competing interests out there and you have to demonstrate through two or three different things and I'll tell you a quick story I talked to Florida Emergency Management when Katrina came through I was talking we're going to a project in Florida and I was talking to Florida State Emergency Management and State of Florida I said how would you guys we were talking about sort of uh, FEMA being ready and, and, and Louisiana, Mississippi being ready for some of that magnitude. And they said, well, we have food distributed in warehouse, food and supplies uh, distributed in warehouses all over the state. And he said, and the gentleman I was talking to said, we have enough for four days. And I thought, wow, I'm a scientist. That number struck me. Mm-hmm. So why four days? What's the magic number with four? Why is it four days? And he quickly said, that's how long it's going to take FEMA to get here. And so they knew because they had been get hit hit year after year after year by storms. So they had gained a valuable experience and valuable lesson. And so sometimes it takes going through the event for people to really understand what's going on. But sometimes you can push them through and give them enough experience by showing them visually uh, what what could happen, potentially could happen, and what the uh, devastation might be, and how do we overcome that to get them there without having to live through the event, which is should be the goal of every emergency manager. Um, speaking of the goals of emergency management, uh, Georgetown really focused on, again, that, that practice piece, putting things into practice. And uh, with Georgetown, 
um, we would go out. We called them intensives when I was there, and you joined shortly after I, I left the program, after I graduated. And so I understand that the intensives are, are the names are slightly different now, but there's still this, this traveling component. I absolutely loved, I mean, the reason why I chose Georgetown outside of the name, because I knew it was going to be a strong program, and I saw some of who the professors were going to be, and so I was like, oh, I, I want to go there. Um, but my number one reason is because I wanted to be in the field and there was a, there was a track that offered that. And so, um, what does, what does Georgetown do now? Uh, again, using a different term, you're going to probably correct me here in a second than intensives, but going out there for, for a week at a time, um, how has COVID impacted some of that travel and how do you make sure that your students are still getting those experiences? Yeah, thank you, John. I, I think that's sort of the piece that attracts a lot of people to our executive program. We have three different programs now. Uh, we have a domestic executive program that focuses on domestic issues, still travels abroad. I have an international executive program, which is predominantly in other countries where they wouldn't visit in the U.S. for, for the residency is what we call them now. Mm-hmm. And we have a two-year master's program that has travel components is a field course that we have for that program that's optional, it's an elective field course, it's not required. So we still get, still get that component. Every student that I've ever had, and it's my fifth year at Georgetown, every student that's gone through our executive programs that have that residency, or you call it intensive, that, that travel component, mm-hmm. that the most critical and most viable portion of their experience was taking, was going theory to practice. And we get the theory in the classroom, the practice in the field. We get a little bit of practice in the classroom, or probably a lot, because our, our Instructors are working professionals in the field. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Tim Manning is someone that teaches in our executive program, and Tim was the deputy undersecretary for FEMA when Craig Fugate was the administrator. So he, he's written about half the FEMA policy. And so having him teach FEMA policy to our students, that's amazing. It's an amazing opportunity for our students yeah. uh, to have that level of, of experience. A VP for disaster services for Red Cross teaches in our program. So they get that practice without even going into the field based on that. But it is invaluable. We go to Paris every year for our terrorism class. Paris is ground zero for terrorism in Europe right now. Uh, they've done an amazing job learning from their mistakes and correcting their mistakes. And they're incredibly, incredibly, incredibly honest about what they did wrong and how they tried to fix it. It's, it's eye-opening for our students to have an emergency manager talk about things they did wrong at such an honest level and what they try to do to fix it. So amazing experience in Paris. We go to Brussels, we talk to EU, we go to London, talk to Fire Brigade. Uh, we go to Interpol and talk to Interpol while we're there. So amazing trips there, amazing sort of connections there. You can imagine learning from other people, learning from their mistakes, how valuable that is. So that's incredibly valuable. And I agree, uh, the residency component or the intensive component is, is absolutely utter and fabulous, which sets us apart from other programs. Uh, but on top of that, the challenge this year has been COVID. And, you know, Georgetown uh, is incredibly, incredibly conservative when it comes to the health and safety of their faculty, staff, and students, Mm -hmm. and appropriately incredibly conservative. Uh, They've done an excellent job of taking care of our people, if you will, uh, through this this devastating pandemic. And so how that's impacted us, uh, unfortunately, has meant that we've not been allowed to travel for the residencies as a result of that. Uh, but I'm happy to say that, that our students have been taken care of and our faculty and staff have been taken care yeah. of as a result of that as well. And so what we've done is we've done virtual residencies um, uh, for, since, since March. I think Paris was our last residency we went in the field to do. And we built, but and that's a challenge and an opportunity as well. The opportunity here is we have uh, directors, uh, people that have led COVID response in Israel and in Italy be on our uh, be in our class, and we wouldn't have been able to get those folks had we not been virtual. So we've taken advantage of the challenge and, cre- and turned it into opportunities as best we could. And this year, what we tried to do is we said we can't travel in the fall. We're hopeful that we can still travel in the spring. Uh, but if we can't travel, what, what we've offered our students is we've said if you don't get to go on residency this year because of COVID, uh, then we'll do them virtually. You'll get your degree, and you'll be allowed to attend those residencies next year when we're mm-hmm. hopefully back in back to normal. So we, we've created a way in which we can get through the year uh, as as best as possible, taking advantage of the challenge with opportunities that we normally wouldn't get by having a more impressive array of speakers than we normally get. 
while at the same time telling our students, if you don't get to travel this year for the residency, you can come next year. Oh, that's nice. That's nice that you're offering that. Uh, the, the reason why the intensives were so, well, before joining the program, the reasons why the intensives were so important for me is because I wanted to get out there and see it. And what it quickly became is the people, we had Craig Fugate came um, while, while I was there, and we had Admiral Allen, and we had um, the, uh, at the fire brigade, the, the lead um, for the 7-7 seven, seven attacks in, uh, in London. And it, what it quickly became is, is that invaluable experience of, again, talking with people who actually did it. And um, what I find is, this is my, this is my like, little jab at CEMs. See, uh, I, I find a lot of CEMs are the people who've actually never responded before, but they're trying to prove to somebody that they know what they're talking about. So they say, I've been, I've been doing plans for seven years um, as a volunteer. So look, I, I have my CEM. And once you start to get into response and you get into people who, who have done it, um, that's, that's when it like changes everything. And um, CM is so good for the field. It's, it, it shows there's a credibility there. And so there's something to be said there. But again, talking to the people who have that experience. Um, I, understanding that we're a little bit short on time. I do want to, because I'm a, such a big fan of Georgetown, I've talked about it so many times. I've had four or five people on here now and, and the director of, uh, the program. So, uh, could you just walk us through the five major courses really briefly and just say, here's one insight from each of those courses, what people can learn from that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'll just talk about the executive program since that's one that you went through. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, two executive programs and the international one is different, but I'll just go through the domestic executive program. So we start with theory and legal framework, which is incredibly important as a theoretical legal foundation for how we have to do emergency management. I mean, it's not just a good idea as the old ad campaign used to say, it's the law. And it is the law. We have to follow the law. And we have Tim Manning teach that class and it's sort of an example of, of what we did in that class in the past was uh, last year we got to travel. We were in Hawaii for that class. And Hawaii the Hawaii theory and legal framework. We looked at sort of the connection between Federal, local, and st uh, local state emergency management. What are some of the challenges of those connections? Because Hawaii has five major disaster declarations that year. We sort of talked through each one of those disaster declarations. Where did the problem occur in terms of enhancing our ability to respond and recover? Amazing experience for students. We got to walk on the land from uh, the volcano in Kilauea up to the Big Island with several different places. So amazing opportunity. But the reality here is we're seeing in the field the impact of poor policy decisions or the impact of really good policy decisions where we need to readjust policy. Hmm. Uh, the second class was natural hazards. I thought that class, and we went to Puerto Rico for that class. So we, we showed up and all of our students were anti-FEMA. FEMA must have did a poor job in Puerto Rico based on what they read and heard on the news media. And by the end of the week, uh, the response from students about FEMA was, FEMA's amazing. How did they do such a good job? <laughs> we really got to understand the exposure that they had to Maria and other natural hazards. Some of the challenges for overcoming each one of those hazards. We talked to people in the field that dealt with and responded to, and they told us, look, the public-private partnership is critical. We have to do a better job of public-private partnerships. And what, and this is how we did it. This is how we did it in Puerto Rico. And this is why it was great. And they started to serve as a poster child for public-private partnerships in terms of disaster response. When, in a time when everyone was overwhelmed. So the third class in that program is, is weapons of mass destruction and terrorism. And I already talked about this a little bit, so I can kind of skip over it really quickly. We do that class in Paris every year. Mm -hmm. uh, so we don't really have the, the good experience that you talk about wanting to hear from the professionals that respond in the U.S. So we take that class to Paris uh, to get that experience from, from Europe. What a great problem like, for the U.S. right now. What a great problem. Let's hope yeah. we keep it. I have to keep going to Paris. Yeah. Uh, we go to London as a day trip with that, meet with Scotland Yard, London Fire Brigade. Our students got to go on the fire boat, which does not happen. So they got up and down the Thames on the fire boat. And mm -hmm. something that, that they don't realize is London has had over 700 terrorist attacks in the last 10 years. So they are experts at it because it happens to them all the time as well, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So the next class is uh, our international disasters class. Uh, some years we have that in different places as well. A couple years ago, we were in Geneva for that class. So looking, and, and we met with the four global leads of UN, 
And we said, and UN said to us, your program is important to us. We want to be a part of it. And our students were like, kept raising their hand. What does UN do? What does UN do? We met with the IFRC, International Federation of Red Cross, and those kinds of people in the field. And they told us intimate stories about when we were in the field, this is what happened. Here's what you learned. Here's what we'd like to see happen. Here's reality, right? Uh, so understanding that, that in that, that experience. And our last class is Capstone, uh, which we have students do original piece of research that contributes to the field. And we typically have that class in DC so that we can do what we call gallery walk where we invite uh, friends and alumni of the program to come view the student research and engage our students with the scholarship that, that they've produced. You make me want to go back to Georgetown. I, I really miss it. I, I had such a good time there. And, you know, obviously because I've had so many people from Georgetown in here, the, my classmates, they came from so many different backgrounds. Um, and a, a lot of them, because it was that executive master's focusing on people who already have experience, we were, I, I was able to, to integrate with emergency managers who wanted to change the field for the future. And, uh, man, it was a great, great experience. So, that's my pitch, free pitch for Georgetown. Uh, you should apply if you want to go. Okay, so that brings us to our last section, rapid fire. We're going to do this really, really quick. We always fail on this, but we're going to try to do it right. Very quick answers uh, for, for us, please. And um, if you want to expound, we actually like that a lot. But if you, if you don't want to, that's, that's cool by us too. Okay, so rapid fire. Uh, kind of a funny one. Which thesis or capstone stood out to you most during the last five years at Georgetown? Well, that's a tough question I, because there's so many that, that have been excellent. We'll give you two. One from a response perspective, a lights and sirens perspective, as Brock Long would say, one from sort of a re more research perspective. So we had a student who was a battalion fire chief for uh, a battalion in, in a state, and she came up with a RFID identification uh, system so that, so that firefighters, when they arrived on scene, could immediately know what the situation was better inside. And as they moved through the scene, you could scan the uh, RFID tag uh, that they had for, for, for people that were there and create a, a system where first response was, A, safer, uh, more convenient, and more efficient for those that were impacted, potentially cool. save lives. And so really great capstone. Uh, so great, in fact, that she's working on uh, licensing that RFID system and putting that out there for other fire battalions. Uh, and then we had a student that recently did a capstone project that I thought was was, was quite exceptional Was on a, from a humanitarian crisis perspective uh, that tried to understand uh, feminine hygiene products and the distribution and the lack of distribution of feminine hygiene products in humanitarian crisis settings. And so the range is from license hiring to humanitarian crisis to preparedness. So we, we have quite a few every year that are, that are, are extraordinarily exceptional mm -hmm. and we have students that are going on and publishing capstones in peer-reviewed literature, which is, which is amazing. It's awesome. My capstone was, um, talking about the emergency manager impact of, uh, of response in, and, and more of an anthropologic, um, anthropology, uh, kind of way of like just lo looking the, into how different cultures bringing those different cultures into a new region and and what were the impacts of that and it was amazing to see like the lack of awareness uh, from emergency managers as they try to bring their own culture into a new system and it would break or if they would be able to integrate with that and um, what were the outcomes of that and so the, the idea was to, to be able to help emergency managers increase our capability by integrating with the cultures that we, that we, um, the subcultures that we have to work with. Um, yeah, so I'm going to cheat and say two more. I'm going to cheat okay. really quickly. <laughs> Public-private partnerships is the wave of the future for emergency management. You know that. Mm -hmm. So we had a student who worked for one of the largest telecommunication companies in the world do our program. And what he looked at was risk within the, tele the telecommunication network in terms of exposure to hazards mm -hmm. and the resilience level of that network. And he did an amazing capstone on that and then took it back and that's serving as the foundation for uh, the plan for minimizing risk in their network for his company. So an amazing sort of capstone that had immediate impact. And we have a student in Qatar in our international program that looked at food security in Qatar and, and really did a great job of understanding how food insecure they are in certain ways and how, 
uh, how they've done an amazing job with food security and otherwise looking for gaps and helping his country overcome some of those gaps. So far-reaching capstones uh, around the world, globally, internationally as well. Uh, Public-private partnerships, you brought that up for the, for the future. So I guess that would be your piece of advice, right? If you're going to give some advice to, to somebody for the future emergency manager, would you suggest focus on private-public partnerships? Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, no one has enough money. No one single entity has enough money. So we have to work together better. Mm. And I, I think my advice would be twofold. One would be public-private partnerships. We have to sort of understand how we can work better together, both in the preparedness all the way through the response recovery, and also integration of global health, of public health and global health better into emergency management. Those are my two primary pieces of advice for anybody that's, that's going into the field. Awesome. Okay. Uh, second to the last question, which intensive or residency uh, has been, uh, is your most, uh, is your favorite one to go to? You talked a lot about uh, Paris. Is Paris your favorite one? Uh, well, let me be completely honest. Uh, Paris is, I think, the best one because we pack so much and Europe is so, um, you know, compact. It's easy to get a lot of different perspectives. Uh, you know, a short train ride away from Paris is London. A short train ride is Brussels where we got to meet with the EU. We also we also meet with NATO every year when we go to Brussels. Mm. It's not far to uh, Interpol. And so we get them to take the train to Interpol, and then we get that that whole experience with uh, French emergency management. Uh, so, so it's an incredibly compact area geographically, which allows us to have such a wide, diverse perspective from a lot of different organizations that have to get it right and typically do get it right. So I, I just think the learning opportunity for the student is the greatest. Uh, but my second favorite place to go is Hawaii. Uh, for <laughs> and so I have to say Hawaii is the second favorite place because we're studying natural hazards in Hawaii. Mm. And if you know anything about Hawaii, you know they get them all. Yeah, that's perfect. Okay. Oh, look at this. I'm looking at some of my notes here. I'm not like uh, Justice Barrett. I, I did take notes. Um, <laughs> okay, if somebody wanted to learn more about Georgetown, if they, they've been hearing this episode... Uh, and they're like, oh, I got to go to that program. Where would they go to learn more? I think the easiest place is the website. So if you just Google emergency management uh, program at Georgetown, you're going you're gonna to find the website, which is stacked full of information. And not only will you find the information on the website, you'll find contact numbers of those that can provide you more intimate information or personal uh, conversations if you want to have a personal conversation. I'm also always offer and happy to chat with anybody and you can find my contact information on the website as well. But if you, if you need to know it, it's tim.frazier, uh, F-R-A-Z-I-E-R, at georgetown.edu. And I'm happy to sort of have that, that message with everyone as well. John, I, I know you've got emails from me. You know on the bottom of my email list my cell phone number. And I had a student ask me one time, did you mean to put that on your email? Absolutely, I did. <laughs> and said, what does that mean? It means that I can use it, right? And the student was right. Yeah, you can use it. So I'm always happy to talk to people about our program. I think we do a great job. I've been told by people all over the world that our program's the best. And I don't know what evaluative metric they use. I'm just happy that, uh, that the feedback we get from our students is always really excellent. And the thing that tells me a lot about our program is our students and former students are our best recruiters for our program. So our, our audience is, 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 is really happy with the product they're getting. And, and the field is really happy. Our faculty are super happy. People like Tim Manning that teach in our program and Jeff Stern and, and you know, the other giants in the field that, that teach in our program are really committed and really happy with the students that are graduating from our program. Because what that translates in, into is better emergency managers or, or you know, and, and into the field. So what we're doing, a, hopefully we're contributing something to ensuring that we're doing a better job managing emergencies and disasters all over the world. Which is, as you know, one of the fundamental missions of Georgetown is women and and men in service of others daily. Georgetown, uh, this is confirmation bias, uh, but I can confirm that Georgetown is the best master's program (laughs) for emergency managers out there for sure. Uh, So check that out on their website. Dr. Frazier, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. Uh, Very grateful to have you on here and talk. 
kind of that high level, that strategic level of emergency management to, to kind of wrap it all up and say, hey, there's a lot of research that's being done. We need to keep moving forward. We want to keep that fire truck uh, only for parades. That's the goal. So again, thank you so much for coming on here. Thank you, John. My pleasure anytime. Uh, and I think the best disaster podcast out there is Disaster Talk. You guys keep doing the work. <laughs> keep doing the job to make our job easier. So I appreciate it, John. I appreciate all you do for the field. Not only the podcast, but the, all the work that you do for the field and, and how you're enlightening those that, that need to better understand what we do so they can help support us better in the future. Thank you. Thank you again, Dr. Frazier. Everybody, if you like Dr. Frazier's episode, if you got something valuable out of here, you should have because he said a lot of really great things. Please go on. Make sure you subscribe. Give this episode a five-star rating. We're going to be posting a little bit more about Dr. Frazier on our Instagram, our LinkedIn, our Twitter pages. So make sure you check all those out. A Disaster Tough podcast and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. If you want Doberman Emergency Management to help you out with your disaster plans to get an expert involved, you can reach out to us at info at DobermanEMG.com. Again, that's info at DobermanEMG.com.